0: This is not just a significant day for the history of North Place Durban. It's a significant marker for the global North Place family. 102 years ago, in 1921, a man who had an encounter with Jesus started having prayer meetings in his small home in what was at that time a very rural area, a remote area of Texas, In that little prayer meeting, Jesus started working miracles. People started coming to faith and having their lives radically transformed by Christ. Many were physically healed in those prayer meetings and word of what God was doing started to spread throughout the Texas countryside and crowds gathered in and outside that little house until eventually that little prayer meeting became a church. It was the beginning of North Place Church in 1921. 102 years later here I stand preaching to a global family that now numbers in the thousands representing in our church family over 100 different nations of the world, worshiping on five different campuses on two different continents. And we're not just a worshiping church, we are a sending church. We have sent over 100 missionary families to six different continents to love people in the name of Jesus all over this planet. And I say this often, but it's true. The sun never sets on the ministry of North Place Church. And I think it's incredible for us to think about that we stand here today, 102 years later, we are the ripple effects of a prayer meeting that started in Texas in 1921. And I am reminded today of what the Word of God says in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 10. It says, do not despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. And we can say the same thing about that here in Durban five years ago in a house prayer meeting and now we sit here with hundreds of us today. What's happening in Durban today speaks to the power of faith and vision. It speaks to the power of hard work. It speaks to the power of prayer. It speaks to the fruit of being faithful to what God asks you to do. It's the rewards of obedience and it speaks to us of the faithfulness of God. So my goal on this five-year birthday celebration is is to stir all of our hearts, those back in the U.S. and those here in Africa today, to stir all of our hearts. Because if God has been able to do what He's done in the last 102 years, and if God is able to do what He's done in the last five years here in Durban, what might He do in the next five years? What might He do? What are the supernatural possibilities (laughs) of what is next for us in the next decade? Now, it may seem odd, but one of the best ways to think about the future is to look back and to study the past. And here's why your past is so important. Because God is writing a story in your life personally. He's writing a story in our life as a church family. And looking back on our past reveals some key themes of God's activity in our life. And as we see those reoccurring themes and the pattern of God's activity in our life, it starts to give us some hint as to how God wants to continue to write our story into the future. There is a narrative in your life, a storyline, a plot of what God is doing, His agenda in your life that is building towards something significant and purposeful. So we look back on days like today into the past to locate the agenda of God in our lives. And one key piece of every one of our stories is loss, grief, pain, and heartbreak. I don't care who you are, I don't care where you live, you're in the U.S. or you're here in Africa, how much money you have or you don't have, how much education you have or you don't have, what your ethnicity or language or race is, none of that matters because pain and heartbreak is the shared reality of the human experience. It touches all of us and here's why this is important, your pain and I don't mean a headache or some minor physical pain, I'm talking about deep Emotional pain, spiritual brokenness, soul pain. The pain of loss or grief or injustice that has been committed against you. That kind of pain is often an indicator of the problems God has put you on this earth to solve. The pain becomes an indicator of what you're called to do. When you read the Bible you learn that God promises to redeem our pain and then use our pain to bring purposes into our life. He promises to take the brokenness of our life and make something beautiful out of it. One of the places that we see that promise unfold is in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter number 4. And I want us to see this together today. Jesus says this in Luke 4.18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, For he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free. Now when Jesus reads this, he's actually in the synagogue in Luke 4. He's been handed a scroll... That is from Isaiah 61, and he chooses to read this excerpt from Isaiah 61. This was a messianic prophecy in the Old Testament. Hundreds of years before Jesus was born, Isaiah prophesied this is what the Messiah will come to do. So when Jesus finishes reading this scroll from Isaiah 61, he then says this, Luke 4.21, The scripture you have just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Jesus was saying, I am the Messiah you've been waiting for. I am the one that Isaiah was prophesying about. And when Jesus reads that, he gives us the purpose of the Messiah's coming. This is why he came, to bring good news to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to set the captive and the oppressed free. In other words, Jesus came to redeem the pain of the human experience. He came to restore you and your brokenness, and to turn your pain and brokenness into something purposeful, into something beautiful. When we read the Bible, there are hundreds of different titles and names that are ascribed to God, and many of those names are given to him Based off an experience someone had with God. They had an encounter with God and they gave him a name to sum up that encounter. We, we have all of the Jehovah names for God. We call him Jehovah Nisi, which means he is the Lord who goes before us and fights our battles. We call him Jehovah Shalom, which means God our peace. We call him Jehovah Rapha, which means the Lord our healer. We call him Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord our provider. All of those names are given to God in Scripture when someone had an encounter with him. For example, when Abraham was walking up Mount Moriah in Genesis 22 and his little son Isaac looks over to him and says, Father, where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham turned to Isaac and said, The Lord himself will provide the sacrifice. That was the first time in recorded history that God had ever been referred to as Jehovah-Jireh. When uh, Abraham gets to the top of Mount Moriah and God does provide for the sacrifice, it says in Genesis twenty-two fourteen, 14, Abraham named the place Jehovah-Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. It was a name given to God, born out of an experience that Abraham had with God. I've had a lot of experiences with God in my life, and most of them have been through the suffering and the trauma and pain that I endured as a child, and have had the ripple effects of that that have followed me throughout my life, and yet through all of the brokenness and the pain, God has been faithful. He has been so faithful through the afflictions of my life that I have given Him a name. You probably have never heard that name. Some of the people back in Texas might have if they've heard me talk about it. But it's a name I want you to get very familiar with today because this is the way I have experienced God in my life and in my brokenness. I call him Jehovah Frugal because he is the God who wastes nothing in our lives. Paul talks about the frugality of God in Romans 8, 28 when he says, And we know that God causes everything, all things, to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose for them. God causes everything to work together for good. He doesn't even waste our pain. He turns it into something beautiful and purposeful. Today, I just want to give you a couple examples from the Scripture. You could call these case studies, where we're going to look at the agenda of God in the lives of some people, look at their past, and see God's agenda in their life. And as we do this, I hope it helps you locate the agenda of God in your story so you can get some idea, some hint as to how He wants to use you in the future. That first case study has to do with Ruth and Naomi. It it all sets in the Old Testament book of Ruth. It's a very short book in the Old Testament, and it's the story of Ruth and Naomi. Naomi is a Hebrew woman who marries Elimelech. They are living in Bethlehem, but famine comes to Bethlehem. They are forced to leave Bethlehem because of the famine, and they wind up in Moab, If you know anything about the history of the Old Testament, the Hebrews and the Moabites were at odds with each other religiously. There was ethnic tension, there was religious tension. And so Naomi and Elimelech leave everything familiar and they move to a place of hostility. The famine is so severe that Elimelech dies. Naomi is now a widow. She has two grown sons that she can rest in for her covering But those two sons marry women of Moab, and not long after they marry, because the famine is so severe, they too die. So now there are three widowed women. One of them, named Orpah, one Moabite girl, says to Ruth, her mother-in-law, I'm going to go back to my people. But Ruth says to her mother-in-law, Naomi, I'm going to go where you go. Your people are going to be my people. Your God's going to be my God. I'm going to lay my head where you lay your head. So these two women return back to Bethlehem. The famine is now over. It's been 10 years. When Naomi comes back to Bethlehem, it's only been 10 years, but the grief and the pain of her soul has afflicted her so much physically that she is almost unrecognizable. And you notice that she hears these whispers when she comes back to Bethlehem, people are asking, is this Naomi? Is that Elimelech's wife? Is they can barely recognize her. And this was her reply in Ruth chapter 1 verse 20, "Don't call me Naomi," she told them, "call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter." Naomi in the Hebrew means pleasant. Mara in the Hebrew means bitter. So, what she's saying is, I'm not the same woman I left here. Life has been unkind to me. God has testified against me. Life has been difficult. I am now a bitter woman. And she's blaming God for that. In her suffering and in her limited perspective, Naomi didn't realize that God didn't cause her pain. But God was working behind the scenes to redeem her pain for his glory. Naomi did not yet know God as Jehovah Frugal, the God who promises to waste nothing. The story unfolds. As two widow women in this culture, they had no means of providing for themselves. And no male would step up and perform the rite of a kinsman redeemer. And these women could have starved to death. There was one option for the poor in that culture During harvest season, they could go into the grain fields and harvest behind the grain harvesters. And if there was any kernels left on the crop or any fell out of the bags, the poor could reap from the leftover kernels. Ruth, being faithful to her mother-in-law, goes to glean in the fields with the poor. As she's picking up leftover grain, she just happens, the Bible says, to stumble in the field of Boaz, a wealthy landowner. Boaz is smitten by her beauty. And he tells the harvesters, hey, when you see that woman, leave some stuff on purpose. Just spill your bag for her. Over time, the two meet. They fall in love. They get married. By the end of the book, they have a child. Their son's name is Obed. That may not sound like a familiar name to you, but Obed has a son a generation later, and his name is Jesse. That ought to start sounding familiar to you. A generation later, Jesse has a son, and his name is David. That ought to sound real familiar to you. That is King David. And generations later, the son of David, Jesus Christ, was born from the line of Naomi and Ruth. Listen, God took the two women through the sufferings and afflictions of their life and positioned them so that they could be a part of God's plan to bring the Savior into the world. Had Naomi only known when she was suffering that God was working behind the scenes and that he was going to use her tribulations and trials, that he was working all of this together for his good, it would have brought purpose to her suffering and to her pain and she could have The storm. God was wasting nothing in her life. My hope today is that you and I will have a different perspective in our suffering. Instead of saying, like Naomi, God has testified against me as we face the headwinds and suffering of life, we would declare in faith, God is going to use this in my life for my greater good and for His greater glory. God will redeem the pain of our troubles and trials to accomplish his kingdom purposes. And what that means is the powers of hell that you are fighting against right now only serve as a chisel in the hand of God to form you and shape you and position you for God's greater glory and your greater good. I don't know all of the past of all of the people in our North Place family, both here in Durban or back in Texas, but I do know this, God has promised to redeem it and he has promised to use it as fuel that will propel you into your purpose and into his preferred future for your life. Another case study I want you to see today, and I don't have time to unpack this. I just want to quickly summarize it. If you want to read it later, it's in Genesis 37 to 50. It is the story of Joseph's life. Many of us are familiar with it. We know that Joseph was betrayed by his own brothers and then human trafficked because they sold him as a slave to Ishmaelite slave traders. He is human trafficked away from his home uh, and sold as a slave in Egypt into Potiphar's house. Because Joseph was so gifted and talented and had the favor of God on his life, everything in Potiphar's house succeeded when Joseph was in charge. But there were accusations made against Joseph that were not true. And because of those untrue, false accusations, Joseph is unjustly thrown in prison where he sits for years. So betrayal, false accusations, injustice leads to suffering moment after suffering moment. As Joseph sits in prison, the king of Egypt has a dream. He can't understand the dream. He gets his wise men and sorcerers together. Nobody can tell him what the dream means. Somebody says, There's a young Hebrew in your prison that has the gift of interpreting dreams. So he brings Joseph into the palace, and Joseph said, I can't do this, but God can. The Pharaoh tells him the dream. And Joseph interprets the dream about this massive famine coming to the earth, but there's also a plan on how to save it. And God gives Joseph the strategy on how to save the world. So the Pharaoh makes Joseph the second most powerful man in the known world and appoints him over all of the implementation of that strategy in that plan. When the famine did come, the homeland of Joseph began to starve. His brothers come to Egypt to buy grain they don't realize that they're standing in front of their own brother. When the identities are revealed, Joseph now has the power to exact revenge on the brothers that betrayed him. But what he says to them totally changed my life. He says to this, in Gen- he says to his brothers in Genesis fifty twenty, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. When you read that verse, you can't help but see where the evil intent came from. The evil intent did not come from God. The evil intent came from man. You intended to harm me, Joseph said, but God's intention toward Joseph, toward you, those intentions are good. He said, you intended to harm me, man, but God intended it all for good. And God's intentions towards Joseph were so good that God untangled the evil of men and he used their ill will toward Joseph to propel Joseph into his destiny. We have to adopt Joseph's perspective. In the face of our suffering and affliction, Joseph held on to the truth that God was going to be good to him and that in his sovereign grace, God would not waste his pain you see a pattern in this verse Genesis 5020 you see the same pattern in all of Scripture and if you'll watch you'll see that same pattern in your life here's the pattern evil comes. God interrupts and makes good out of it. Evil, God, good. That's the pattern. Evil, God, good. He did that in Naomi's life. He did that in Joseph's life. He's done that in my life, and he plans to do that in your life and in this church. Evil, God, good. But God meant it all for good because he's Jehovah Frugal, the God of who wastes nothing. Now, don't miss the last phrase of that Genesis 50 20 principle. Joseph speaks to his brothers. He says, He, God, brought me to this position. Why? so I could save the lives of many people. That's your purpose. There's the purpose and the beauty to the pain that you've had to endure. God redeemed the evil of Joseph's life so he could be involved in the saving of the lives of many people. Listen, lean into this for a minute. When you're going through all the affliction in your life, God isn't just preparing you for your destiny at the same time. Simultaneously, he's also preparing the people you're supposed to impact when you get there. Because your destiny isn't just about you. He's redeeming the evil that's been aimed at you so that you can save the lives of many people. That's what's in my future. That's what's in your future. and That's what's in the future of this church. God redeeming our pain to save the lives of many people. Jehovah frugal will bring beauty and purpose out of our pain. And that purpose is connected to the saving of other people's lives. It's been the story of my life. I was, my father left when I was young, abandoned our family, which made my life vulnerable to outsiders, and they came. Um, I was abused severely as a small boy. Before my earliest memories to the trauma of 8, 9, 10, 11 years old. And because I don't know culture enough here, what is appropriate for me to talk about, I won't. I know more back in the U.S. what details I can and cannot share. But I can just say this. If your imagination can think it as child abuse, I lived through it. As I became a teenager, my, um, my, my heart was so broken, I was trying to find a way to medicate the pain of my life. I turned to substances and I became an addict. So my life has been defined by abandonment, abuse, and addiction. I was almost drowned in my own vomit from an overdose one night. And, and as a young 16-year-old addict, my life was going nowhere. It was looking hopeless. But somewhere along the way, in the sovereign grace of God, I had an encounter with Jesus. I gave my life to Jesus, and he began to untangle the addictive web in my life. He began to be a father to this fatherless child. He began to love me, unwrap me, heal my broken heart. He started giving my life purpose. The experience I had with Jesus was so profound, other people noticed it, but I had a joy that I had never experienced before, a wholeness and a completion to my aching, broken heart, and I thought, everybody needs to know this. And that's when I felt called into the ministry and began to speak as a young man preaching the gospel. Today, Haley and I run a ministry in Dallas for the most severe abuse cases of orphans in the United States. We take the abandoned, the broken, the exploited, give them purpose, speak the love of God into them and help them get placed into families because the scripture says God sets the lonely in families. And when I pray over the facility where we serve these orphan children, I say to the enemy and to those that cause me harm, you meant this for evil against me, but God meant it for good. He has taken the evil that was aimed at my life and redeemed my pain for the saving of many lives. It should have taken out me, the one, but instead it's going to result in thousands of orphan children finding the love of Jesus Christ and forever families because it's the story of the gospel. It is Jehovah frugal. He is the God who wastes nothing. He will redeem our brokenness and make something beautiful out of our brokenness brokenness listen when i tell you about jehovah frugal i am not telling you about a god i read about in a book or i heard about on tv or heard somebody else talk about at a conference when i tell you that i know a god who wastes nothing i'm telling you about a god who has redeemed my pain and my past for his glory some people find it odd that the most significant symbol of christianity is a cross Because historically a cross has been a sign of shame and suffering. But if what I said earlier is true, that pain and heartbreak is the shared reality of the human experience, that it's the experience of all people from all times and in all places, pain, then it should come as no surprise to us that when God chose to reveal His love to us that He chose to do that through suffering and pain. Through a cross. Because I don't care where you are in the world, you understand pain. And when you hear about a God who identified with your suffering, it gets your attention. He understands us. He walked with us in our suffering. But remember, the suffering of the cross gave way to the glory of an empty tomb. It is that pattern again, evil, God, good. It's the same pattern in your life. God brought beauty From the brokenness and pain of the cross. He brought beauty from Ruth and Naomi's brokenness. Beauty from Joseph's brokenness. He's done that for me. And he's going to do that for you. Because he's Jehovah frugal. Can I just. Before I turn this back to our campus pastors in Texas. And Pastor Randy here in Durban. Can I just say this. One last thing I felt in my heart I had to leave you with. My. My heart was moved to that Isaiah 61 passage, the one Jesus read, Luke 18. We have it in our gospel in Luke 18, but it's actually Jesus reading Isaiah 61. If you read that on further past, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted. You read all of that. When you get right past that in Isaiah 61, the promise in Isaiah 61 is that God will give us a crown of beauty instead of ashes. That he will give us joy instead of mourning. That he will give us a garment of praise instead of a spirit of heaviness. And I feel that is the promise to North Place Durban today. I feel that is the promise to North Place in Texas, in Wiley, in Saxey, in Garland, in Hughes. That is the promise that God is saying, I want to be Jehovah Frugal to you today. There are hundreds of different names I could have told you about today of God, the Alpha, the Omega, the author and the finisher of our faith, the Almighty, the Bread of Life, the Chief Cornerstone, the Door, Deliver, Elect, Emmanuel, Everlasting Father, the hope of glory the lily of the valley the light of the world the master the messiah the mighty god the prophet the propitiation the rabbi the rock the rose of sharon the root of jesse the son of god the seed of david the way the wonderful the word i could have told you about any of those names but he said tell them today that i am jehovah frugal The God who wants to take the burnt ashes of their life and give them beauty in its place. The grief in the mourning of their life and give them joy in its place. The spirit of heaviness that is on their life, I want to clothe them in a garment of praise. He wants to be the lifter of your head and the healer of your broken heart. And you know why he's going to restore you? Because it's your destiny to take that pain and use it as a passport to break into the brokenness of other people's lives. It's for the saving of other lives.